This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Poured Over, and today I am so excited because I am joined by Kaming Chang. There are so many books of hers that I know that you remember, Bestiary, Gods of Want, and now we have Organ Meats, which... From the second I saw the jacket, I was like, I'm invested, I'm in, I can't wait to read this book no matter what it's about. And then I heard what it was about, and I said, I'm even more invested now. I needed to see what was going to happen for these girls. And I think to start, I really would just want to know what you would want people to know about this book before they pick it up. Yeah, I mean, this book is kind of a smorgasbord of things. So it's always so difficult. I'm like, oh, I could kind of pick and choose here and there what to share. But yeah, it's about two girls named uh, Rainy and Anita and their best friends, uh, childhood best friends. And they believe and begin to suspect that they are descended from dogs. And um, these kind of dog-headed women and women-headed dogs appear in their dreams. In their life, there's a lot of stray dogs that is near them, near where they live, and they're kind of interacting with this pack of stray dogs. Um, and these dogs kind of lead them into this dream world slash dream quest, <laughs> I would say, as they kind of delve into their lineage um, and coming to understand what their origin stories are and how they can find their way back to each other, especially as they have to grow up and kind of separate. Very reluctant separation, I would say. So to me, this is a book about return and about a kind of like feral friendship. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, not only just feral because they're maybe getting bit by stray dogs, but because <laughs> the connection between these two is so strong and so fierce. As I was reading, I kept thinking like, I know what I'm getting out of this, but I think everybody who comes to it and brings their own things because there's so many layers and so much nuance everyone is going to pick up something different when they read this book. I don't think there's any one way to sort of be like, and this is definitively what all these characters are trying to say. Yeah, and that was kind of my goal because I was interested um, in the chorus of dogs and how they function as a pack and how so much of their story and way of recording their history is collective and in a collective, um, like choral, multi, multi-voiced, multilingual song, like full-throated song. Um, and so I, I can imagine, you know, a reader kind of plucking threads. Oh, threads. <laughs> That's also an important motif in the book. Plucking whatever threads that they want um, out of the book. I um, kind of a choose your own adventure in a way um, and however you want to experience it. I was imagining almost like this gush of water, like this waterfall, maybe of drool. I don't know. Dog drool, maybe. <laughs> um, That's kind of like pouring over you. There are so many ways to, I think, interpret the events of the story as well. My perspective on these two characters primarily, but sort of all of your characters, even going back, especially to Bissieri and like the daughter and mother in that story as well. From one page to the next, I would have such a radically different view of these people because everything is constantly shifting and everything is constantly moving. And I wonder as you write... Are you writing linearly through this? Because some of the chapters sort of do skip around and time isn't really functioning in a way that we're familiar with as you go. So do you have something like a linear thread that pulls you through or is it a little bit more nebulous? 
It's definitely more nebulous. It's interesting because I feel like my natural instinct is to just write something from beginning to end. And, and that actually helps me finish because because it, it provides this like sense of momentum where I'm like, okay, now I have to finish the draft. But I think Orchimedes is a little unusual for me. Um, and then sometimes afterwards in revision, I'll then find a structure that is very nonlinear. That is kind of, I find the through line. Um, and oftentimes that's not very chronological or linear. With organ meets, it was an unusual process for me because it was very patchwork, both writing it and revising it, usually just one or the other. The first section I ever wrote for this book um, was the origin story of the dog and the chorus of dogs and the dog pack. And so for a while, it was a, it was a story without characters. Um, and it felt very right for this book to begin that way because I think no one in this book is really an individual per se. They're all kind of possessed, haunted, in communication with their dreams, um, with dream selves, uh, with spirits of dogs. And so to me, each of them is kind of a vessel or a collective. And I think they experience themselves as collectives as well in a really interesting way. So um, in a way, yeah, when I was first beginning this book, it was showing me this map um, toward these characters who would all be extensions of this chorus of dogs. As I was reading, going through, there are so many moments where I had to stop and sort of be like, okay, I need to read that paragraph one more time. Not only because there is just gorgeous language that deserves a second, third, or like 12th reread, but mm -hmm. because there are so many little like turns of phrase or little moments where I'm like, if I was skimming this or if I like just didn't pay attention right here, right now, I would have missed it. And I bet there are like 150 others that I did miss because I just happened to like glance over it or because I don't have the experience to show me the thing that is there. I feel like this book is such an excavation in a way because it is about these two girls kind of digging through their lineage and discovering all of these stories and folklore, all of these folk tales that kind of surround um, their their being and their body and their their forming as people. But I really wanted to create like a cluttered landscape of language in a way. And again, there's that sense of I don't really I I'm I don't care if people aren't able to like grasp every sentence or maybe only kind of like pluck one or two sentences out of that landscape. I think that sense of that feeling of excavation, that you can excavate from it what you want. And there are these fossils that kind of run through the book as well that bond them. Like they they find things in their neighborhood and they forage and they'll pretend that they're fossils. Like, you know, a plastic fork is like the thigh bone of a dinosaur. Um, and they have this imaginative um, self that's always overlaying the landscape. Um, and I feel like writing the book kind of felt the same way where I was really interested in in language as those imaginative, as those fossils that can kind of um, lead to all of these like imaginative made up creatures that the reader can kind of uh, formulate for themselves as well. Or they can choose to just like leave the landscape as it is and just kind of glide over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it reminded me so much of being a kid and having that sort of imaginative play and like being like, oh, yeah. You can go out into your backyard or you can go into your parents' room or and you know, a space that maybe is a little unfamiliar to you and make something out of something that isn't yours and that you maybe don't have ownership over, but you can sort of make that yourself. But it doesn't ever feel like nostalgic or soft. Mm -hmm. It's a very hard-edged look at that sort of youthful unknowing. 
Yeah, yeah. I think a lot about imagination as like as world building and as a, a kind of key to the future in a way. So rather than imagination that looks backward or like you were saying is is like a form of nostalgia, I'm really interested in imagination being harnessed by these two girls as a way of of building and creating a future world and future selves, um, which then kind of becomes literal because there's like bodybuilding <laughs> or building of a body um, in the book. I think they're really interested in the imaginary because it, it, it does belong to them in a way, whereas real things I think can be taken away from them um, or may, they may not have the agency to shape certain um, certain pieces of the quote unquote real world or reality, but they have access to this other form of reality that they can then assert over the reality that they were, they were, they've inherited um, or that was given to them. Um, so I love the idea of like these two girls creating a pathway for another reality and another world to exist. Um, they're kind of like the midwives in a way, um, which, which I really love thinking about. It's this like creation of a personal mythology that sort of intertwines with their cultural mythology, their family mythologies, the stories that are told to them. And then they sort of regurgitate into their own understandings and that translates into their own sort of interactions with them. And as they grow and change, the way that the two girls sort of diverge into that different mm. way of sort of synthesizing and connecting with their world, I was like, I don't know where this is going to go. And I don't really know who I identify with more. And yet I was like, I just got to buckle up and keep going for the next thing. Yeah, they are foils in a way. And I remember as I was writing their characters, I, I kind of distinctly remembered wanting to shape them as opposites on the spectrum in a way um, where Anita is this very, very assertive kind of dominant character. It, it is her world and we're just living in it. And I feel like she very much has that view of, okay, I can choose to exclude this from my world and suddenly it doesn't exist. Um, she is She is a magician to me. Um, whereas I feel like Rainy, besides being like more cautious and more interior and more kind of inward facing, I feel like she's kind of like the bridge between Anita's world and the world that they were born into. To me, she's kind of like more of a messenger or like a a creature who can kind of move between different worlds. Whereas Anita is very much like, I've created this world and I'm staying here and I'm not letting anything encroach <laughs> upon this world that I've created. So it was really fascinating to kind of tap into both parts of me in a way. I feel like Anita is like a fantasy. Um, there's almost a part of me that wishes I could channel more of Anita's energy into my life. I just wonder what that would be like <laughs> to just want to assert so much agency. Um, and then Rainy, I feel like maybe is a little bit more naturally who I am in that I feel like she is a witness. She's someone who observes. Um, and she she moves between these worlds and these realities um, and never quite decides on which to commit to, I think, except that she has really committed to Anita. There's definitely moments where I was like, I could imagine a friendship with like both of these girls and be like, mm -hmm. sometimes it would be amazing. And sometimes it would be like, oh, this is not going to work, especially yeah. with Anita. <laughs> I think Anita could be like the best friend when her attention is like turned towards you and she's like so invested. But the second that anything doesn't go the way that she thinks it should or the way that is her vision, it's just like, no, that doesn't exist. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there's a self-centeredness to Anita that I actually find is really interesting in contrast to a lot of, I think, messages that I was taught as a girl, which is, you know, to be selfless, to be self-sacrificing. And I feel like Anita kind of subverts ideas of goodness, like what it means to be good as a daughter or as a mother. She has this kind of insistence on holding on to herself and centering herself in a way that to me is just so foreign. And again, such a fantasy. Um, but I love that she kind of is rebellious to her core, <laughs> not just in the things that she does, which are pretty wild things, but I think in the way that she refuses to relinquish or to sacrifice any part of herself to the world. She's kind of uncompromising um, in a way that I think is just a contrast to so many of the inherited messages that she's been taught about what it means to grow up and what it means to become a woman. And yet she's still able to care and love. I mean, for the sake of Rainy, when Rainy is basically asleep for this period of time in this fanciful way, Anita goes against the wishes of, you know, her own family and of Rainy's family in order to do what she thinks she needs to do in order to help and save her friend. And it is an act of rebellion and an act of like subversion. But at the same time, I think a lot of times we get told, especially as girls, young women, that if you are acting in these ways, it's because you don't care for the people around you or mm. that you, you don't, you know, you're acting against those who are trying to do good things for you. But in Anita's case, it's that's the ultimate way she shows love is this unwavering and unfaltering connection and intimacy. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that kind of like popular adage about like, you can't really take care of others unless you take care of yourself first. Um, and I feel like it, Anita has this very strong foundation that she's building for herself and this worldview that she's crafting for herself. And because she is, there is like kind of a kind of stable ground that she's standing on kind of ironically, even more than I think Rainy, even though Rainy maybe thinks that she has Rainy, I think, feels like she has more of a grasp on reality. <laughs> but in fact, I think Anita is very stable in certain ways. And I think that stability allows her to care for other people um, and to kind of include other people in that in the embrace of her of her wild reality that she's building for herself. And the connection between those two and between their families as well, I think in all of your work, sort of this tenuous and strange family connection of sometimes the utmost and undying like love and support and sometimes the person who's most likely to be like you are wrong this is not what you are supposed to do and let me tell you why and all those things sort of happening at the same time and especially in your work between women because there are there are male characters that sort of appear here and there to serve their purposes but i think the strongest and most impactful relationships in your work are between primarily mothers and daughters, but, you know, between female family members. I'm really interested in the kind of coexistence and blurring between love and harm, where the women in these intergenerational relationships, there is an incredible amount of love um, and loyalty and solidarity and oral storytelling that really binds them and kind of threads these relationships together. And at the same time, there's often the presence of violence and harm. Um, and again, a lot of the inherited lessons about, oh, what it means to be a woman or what you should do or not do as a girl or 
um, as a wife, as a mother, are harmful or in some way about sacrificing yourself or compromising um, some part of yourself, or they're they're very restrictive, these lessons. And so there's just an interesting, I think, in these relationships, there's liberation. And there's also at the same time, it's opposite. Um, and I'm I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by um, kind of in one breath that, oh, th- this love can kind of sustain you and that it it opens up all of these radical possibilities for relating to the world, for caring for yourself, caring for others. There's this kind of beautiful life-giving intimacy. And then also on the other hand, there are these kind of constant reminders of this is what the world is really like. Remember kind of the reality that you're in. Um, so I'm like, oh, how, how I'm so fascinated <laughs> by that dynamic and how it can exist in one relationship. And that's something I'm kind of constantly probing are the limits and the possibilities of love within those intergenerational relationships between women. And the way that the stories are told, so much of your work is sort of told through these stories being told to someone else. And we're sort of getting, sometimes with commentary, and sometimes with sort of in translation or through translation, but these connections of stories within stories and these families that create sort of their own universes and their own small isolated worlds that interact in tenuous, like in little ways here and there with the wider world around them. But so rarely do we see any characters or any people outside of the immediate family groups. And usually if we do, they're just mentioned in another story or another interaction, but the isolation and the sort of grouping of these people together is like a pressure cooker for these huge relationships and sometimes huge fights, but also like the most love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm really interested in what it means to love as a choice and then also what it means to love as a form of duty and in what ways do those kind of butt up against each other or um, become these sources of conflict yeah ideas of like what part of loyalty is you choosing is an expression of agency like I I I choose or I commit to this or I I want to foster sustain this and then what part of loyalty is obligation or antiquated ideas of what family is or should be and so I feel like I'm constantly always balancing between those questions, um, I guess, between like agency and um, and duty in a way. Um, and I feel like the family is such an interesting exploration of those themes. And also Anita and Rainey's childhood friendship as well, because it is so it's a friendship that is so incredibly formative to them. I was particularly particularly interested in a friendship that forms before they have a sense of identity in a way um, before they kind of decide, oh, this is who I am. And this is what, these are what my values are. Um, and this is what I'm looking for in a friend. It's kind of pre any of those <laughs> ideas. And I think because of that, there's an, there's that lack of boundaries between them um, that can really dramatize those conflicts and those themes that I'm trying to explore. So often early on, it seems like they're sort of trying out these identities on each other as they're going through. I think of a scene early where they're like coming up with rules for what their lives as a dog would be and just sort of watching them navigate like this is how we're going to try and create boundaries and then inevitably test each other's boundaries and see 
where we can sort of push and where we can't. And I think a lot of it is Anita being like, you know, these are the things we're going to do. And you have to wear this thread around your neck and that like symbol of that connection between the two of them as they're sort of trying to figure out this friendship, which inevitably will sort of split and what happens then. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how kind of practical they can be even within the imaginary. Like I love when Rainey's like, but what are we gonna eat? <laughs> There's something so incredibly like practical and tactile about that while they're like imagining um these wild lineages and ancestries and and hybrid monstrous selves um that I really love. And yeah, there is a there is an interesting like negotiation that that is constantly playing out between them and I think they're yeah you're right they are constantly testing each other in a certain way and I think even Rainey her decision to return to Anita is in a way testing herself as well um it's not just her relationship with Anita that's at stake but also she she's trying to find figure something out about herself and um trying to learn about like oh is this the kind of person that I am am I someone who who is at fault here? Um, do I take responsibility? Um, am I accountable for this person? And what does it mean to be accountable for for another person um, or for my own actions? So for me, there's like this interesting, like through their relationship, they each, I think as individuals, particularly Rainy, because we get to see her perspective when she's like a young adult. Um, that's as much about her relationship to herself, um, where she's testing those boundaries and kind of feeling out um, yeah, how she wants to relate to the world and to these like very, um, I think, intense wells of desire and emotion that she has within herself too, that I don't think she's really capable, at least in certain points, of tapping into without Anita. I think in some way Anita is like um, her electric charge (laughs) Um, that allows her to access parts of herself um, that she has maybe compromised or um, decided to ignore because it's something that's been taught to her or because she believes that it it shouldn't belong in her world. And these are all very like real world tangible concepts that we interact with and that we understand. And then you set them on this backdrop of the fantastical and this world that is just, you know, a half step to the side of where we are, where there's nothing overtly different and there's no you know overt magical system and yet the things that happen are impossible and they have this magical realism quality and that is the thread that goes through all of your work and combines sort of this like triptych you've created of of pieces so far and that they really all play and I can imagine them all being the same universe in the same world it's the you know the Kaming Chang theatrical, you know, <laughs> cinematic <laughs> yes, universe. Exactly. And and watching and sort of unfolding and never knowing what's going to come next, it sort of heightens all of these things that we know and we experience and yet seeing it with animal parts and living trees and banana ghosts and, you know, all of this, it just combines and really forces you to interact with all of these things in a different way. Yeah, I think for me, those elements, they never feel like, they always feel so woven into the language. I feel like they spring from the language itself, where rather than it being like an an extra element per se, 
Um, it's almost like if the, the language is what I'm planting, you know, the seeds that I'm planting on the page, it's what sprouts directly from the language. Um, and I think my love of metaphor is also something that drives those elements because oftentimes a speculative element or something strange or wild or fantastic that happens comes directly from making a metaphor literal. Um, and I'm someone who, as a kid, completely believed I could do magic. Like 100% believed that if I could, use, I could, I had the power of telekinesis or I was a psychic. And it was only a matter of learning to tap into those <laughs> parts of myself and learning to kind of stretch and um, pull the threads and the fabric of those other worlds. But I had absolute faith that it was possible for all of us <laughs> to move things with our minds or to, um, to do magic. Like I was obsessed with magic spells and reciting magic spells. And I feel like metaphors are magic to me or like casting a magic spell. You know, if you say the sun is an egg yolk um, on the page, it, it, it is true in that world that you've created. That is a true fact. Um, and so to me, I'm like, oh, that's that's exactly what I wanted to do as a kid is is cast a magic spell. And with every metaphor or simile um, I, I write, it is casting magic. It is creating it is building the rules of the world and in that world. You can move things with your mind and you can um, access um, all these other different realities. Um, and so I feel like it is just a delightful wish fulfillment for me as a writer to get to create magic um, through language. And nothing ever stands out as like, oh, what is happening now? Because like you said, it is woven so well into just the sentence structure. There are times where I was reading something and then I would be like, oh, that's crazy. Mm -hmm but I didn't even realize it in that moment. Or when I would be like, how would I tell someone about this? And you'd be like, well, I'm not sure. I think I'd have to start at the beginning because the sentence level structure is so good. The voice is so good that nothing sort of shocks you because it works. I mean, not to say nothing shocks me. That's not entirely true because this book and a lot of your work has this very visceral, very like, corporeal sense of human existence and the body and what it can do and some things that it can't do like become a kite or grow a tail or be inside of a tree but there are so many things that it just connects in that way and they're hard to read at times because we have this sense of you know oh I can't read that or something I think that comes with literary fiction but when it's written in this work, you're like, okay, I'm, I guess I'm on board. Yeah, I kind of almost think of it as speaking of the landscape, the idea of the landscape, where because everything is kind of so dialed up or exaggerated that it almost become like it almost like you become almost like acclimated to disorientation. I think that's something as a reader, I love that feeling where when the whole world is kind of askew, you start to kind of skew with the world. And it becomes ordinary in a way, like the magic becomes ordinary. And I, I really love that. Like I love kind of heightening the language. And I'm, I'm really interested in dialogue that I tend to write dialogue that doesn't really sound like how we speak. Um, I love dialogue that sounds like it's kind of written in verse or written in a chorus or the way that you would kind of encounter dialogue in something like the Iliad or the Odyssey, um, where it is kind of as heightened as the language that surrounds it is something that I... I'm obsessed with, I'm always like, how do I make this dialogue rhyme? Like I'm always, it's like a witchy chant to me, <laughs> the dialogue. And I think 
that as a reader and as a writer, I'm always hoping to kind of um, where like when everything is technicolor, that your eyes almost adjust. Um, and maybe that's kind of part of the, oh, maybe it should be more shocking. But like within the context of everything else that has kind of been heightened or stylized in this way, um, it does kind of belong to to this landscape or to this world. Yeah. Like if I just picked a random page of organ meats and read it out loud to someone, they would probably be like, I'm not sure what that <laughs> means. And I would say, well, you would if you read the whole book. And I think <laughs> what works so well is that though there are some very heavy and like intense and emotional pieces, there's so much humor that I didn't expect. There's always like a, a little quirk or a little like joke or comment that I'm like, oh, that just brought me back or like that just, you know, made it a little bit easier to connect to. And because I think when you're reading something like this, if it's just the really intense things at all moments, you sort of glaze over to it. But being able to connect with that humor, especially between these girls, because they are silly and fun, like many children are, it made it so much easier to connect and be like, oh, yeah, I'm right here. Yeah, I read recently, and I wish I could remember which book I read it from, that kind of horror and humor at their root are about transgression. Um, and I loved that so much. And I was like, oh, there, you're right. Like, what makes something really horrifying um, in that genre and what makes something really funny is often this like little transgressive moment of like, oh, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Or, oh, the, the tone has shifted or changed. Um, or this, there's just this delightful sense of surprise or really terrifying sense of surprise. So I love the idea that something really scary and something really funny share the same root. Um, and I think, I think about that a lot too, where sometimes like these moments of humor um, will spring up from the same root as something incredibly dark or serious or horrifying. One of the biggest compliments that I I get as a writer and that I treasure so deeply, like whenever there's anyone says anything vaguely like this to me, I I kind of hold it in a very special place in my heart to to kind of go back and revisit when I'm struggling <laughs> with my writing, which is a lot, which is um, when people say like, oh, I can feel the author enjoying themselves as they're writing this. Like, I feel like the author had fun writing this. Um, like even in, in the kind of darkest moments, like there's a sense of like, oh, you're having fun or you're, you're playing um, or you're experimenting. Um, and that is just so, it's so incredibly special to me because that's, that is the sense that I always hope that people will feel through the writing that always that I'm having fun <laughs> and that there's like a consciousness behind all of the writing um, that is rooted in in a kind of like joy or pleasure, um, even when writing about its opposites or writing about things that are kind of typically we consider very serious. Because I I, I do have so much fun, <laughs> and I want people to know that, and I would love for people to feel that as well. And hopefully, the it gives them permission to to enjoy things or to laugh at things that they might not feel like they can laugh at. Absolutely. I think there's so much of your heart and soul in this book. And like reading it is a connective experience. It's a community experience. Because even though I don't maybe connect or understand or recognize every piece of these characters' experience, there are still so many moments where I'm like, oh, I've been right there. Oh, I know how that feels. Or like, oh, I've, I didn't know how that would feel. Or I didn't expect that. 
And it's such a community experience to enter into a work like this that you have to, like you were saying earlier, that you have to excavate or you have to put something in and able in order to be able to get something back. I think right now there's a lot of like, and I love this too for what it is, there's a lot of like escapist literature, which I think is really like, it's designed to sort of give you everything. And sometimes that's what we need. We need something that gives you everything right up front and you can just be in it. But sometimes I think I love a work that challenges me back just as much as I'm working with it. Yeah, I mean, I love whenever I, 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 I connect really deeply with the text and I'm immediately like, oh my God, I'm this epigraph or something else. Like it, it, it's so inspiring and also something that kind of holds me in its grip. It's often because it, it kind of turns my own gaze inwards and it allows me to connect with and to understand um, or to wrestle with parts of myself that are, are buried so deep. Um, or, or kind of dislodge certain memories that are buried really, really deep. And I love that feeling of turning inward. And I feel like that's like the ultimate power of a book over all other mediums. Like books have the ability to do that, that this intense, like inward excavation that can happen where it feels like literally there's someone like reaching a hand into you, like touching something that I'm like, oh, I didn't even know I had that inside of me, but thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad to know that there is this part of there's like this thread that's reaching out to join with that with the book or with the text. And this this thread is yeah, coming from these deep wells. Yeah, so it's so lovely to hear that you had an experience of um like kind of getting to work with the text and um feeling like it was challenging you as well. Yeah, I'm someone who uh, very much feels like especially with the things I I write, sometimes people will be like, "Oh, I'm not sure like I didn't really learn. I'm not sure what I learned from it, or I'm not really sure I understood it. Um, and I'm like, oh, I totally in- understand the impulse to like want to understand. I feel like that's also what we've been taught to, how we've been taught to read as well. Um, you know, reading quizzes and book reports, you know, is to have, is to understand and to learn and to have these like distinct takeaways. But I also love some of the, the books I love the most are just these experiences of disorientation and I love that feeling of being so kind of jolted and and placed in another reality and just experiencing that that sense of like off kilter or never quite like adjusting to to the language as well as always um something I love as well and find a lot in translated literature yeah so I feel like I I want people to like not feel pressure to understand every moment or to feel like they have to learn from it or have it take away um from it um but just to just to experience it and to kind of define for yourself what that reading experience means you know um whether it's like oh i there's this one sentence that was kind of intriguing for me or it made me think of this um like i think sometimes moving away from what we expect to gain from a book can allow us to have these very deeply personalized experiences with the book um that we get to again define for ourselves right like I feel like so often it would be like, well, but why did the author make the curtains blue or something? And then you have to write a sentence about what the blue represents. But that really, it's such a one layer experience versus how does this make you feel or how does this change how you feel? Does this book reach inside and find like a green jelly bean kidney that you didn't know you had and, you know, show it to you? And I think that like being able to reach out and grab the book's and to say, yeah, like, I'm going to find something in this. 
and not everyone will find the exact same things. And I think that's the best part. I mean, I don't, mm. I don't want to read a book necessarily where I'm going to have the exact same experience that you would have reading it as another person, as another person, just because we all could, you know, decide that the blue curtains meant that they were sad or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like each new book, it is kind of like learning a new language in a certain way, even if it's literally in a language that you already know, um, which if you're reading, yeah, of course. But um, there's this sense of like, I don't know, with every every book or every new text I encounter, um, I feel like the author is in some way like teaching me how to read it, showing me how to read it. Um, and it's every every mind, every narrator, every consciousness is this different language that's being invented right before us on the page. Um, and I love that feeling of, yeah, again, of, of being disorient, disoriented rather than maybe um, more grounded. And especially when you have these three works that sort of work in conversation with each other and can all be connected through some themes and feelings. Now that you sort of finished with these three, when you move on to something next, are you looking for like that new challenge or that new thing? Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like I've made a dramatic shift since finishing these three books, which all three were kind of written in, in a similar time period in my life. So in my mind, they'll always be a triplet triplet sisters. <laughs> um, and I feel like where I am now is um, I'm really interested in genre and genre tropes um, and playing around with kind of existing structures for stories um, and how I might kind of play into them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in borrowing more structures, um, basically, and um, playing around with all of the stories that I grew up loving as a child. So that's been really, really fun. I definitely feel like this is like the fun house. Bestiary Gods of Law and Organ Meats are like this fun house mirror hallway where it's like these three distorted mirrors and Organ Meats is the end of the hallway. Um, and so they're their own like little offshoot and branch. And I'm now pivoting or building this new hallway or this new fun house <laughs> extension that's going in a different direction, which I, which I love a lot. Um, and I think a, a huge a huge piece of me will always kind of reside with these three books but I love the idea of like oh as you're writing a body of work it can be a body like it um it it, it can be kind of a Frankenstein <laughs> um body of work um and that way it doesn't make me feel too much pressure to have to diverge too much I'm like okay well then I have to be something entirely different and be like very spare and and go for realism um like I can feel like I'm just kind of creating different limbs of the same beast and what that beast will be I have no idea but it's it's exciting <laughs> and I think if listeners are interested in sort of understanding where you come from when it comes to building a body organ meets is a great place to start with that because there is some very intriguing things that happen there but I think that these books especially organ meets have really just like opened so many doors for my own understanding and for other people to sort of witness this world that you've created in such an interesting and fun way. And I can't wait for people to get their hands on Organ Meats. It's out now. Thank you so much for joining us and talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's truly a dream because I love, I love October and I love Halloween um, and I love the season of horror. So to me, this, this book is just an absolute dream for it to be coming out this time of year. I feel like some part of me has truly awakened and has my dream has, has fulfilled um, that dream. Um, so thank you for your thoughtful and lovely questions. I've really enjoyed getting this chance to talk about these characters with you. 
Thank you so much. I'm Jenna Siri, a bookseller and associate producer of Port Over, and today I am so excited to be joined by Ambara Salam, author of Hazardous Spirits. You may remember her from books like Belladonna or Things Bright and Beautiful, but today we're here to talk about her incredible new work, which is a dark, atmospheric ride through the mystical and sometimes dangerous and spooky world of spiritualism in the 1920s. So thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I love this book. I could talk about spiritualism and this era of new thought forever. Uh, it's kind of my, one of my biggest special interests. I love it. So I can't wait to delve into some of the things that make this book really special. But I would love to have you start by setting this book up for us and for our listeners, because I'd love to hear it from you. Okay, sure. Hazardous Spirits is set in Edinburgh in Scotland in 1923. And it follows the story of a woman called Evelyn Hazard who wakes up one day and um, her husband announces out of the blue that he can communicate with the spirits of the dead. And the book really follows Evelyn's journey as she tries to kind of navigate this revelation and work out what's actually happening in her life. Um, is her husband really quite unwell? Is he a terrible fraud or is it true? And there is so many things that they encounter between that point and where we leave our characters at the end that I never quite knew exactly where we were going to end up next. There are so many like twists and interesting people that they meet. And every time like something new would happen, I'd be like, I don't know how this is going to play into the bigger picture here, but I can't wait to find out because there's so many little gems. But I wonder... I mean, not everyone is as super into this era and this topic as I am. So I wonder, how did you stumble into this world and know that this is the next story you wanted to tell? So uh, there were a few avenues, I guess, into the story. Um, actually, quite a lot of the book I wrote during uh, lockdown in the UK. And I was kind of reflecting on this cultural moment that we were living in at the time and thinking really not about the moment of crisis but what would things what are things going to look like and feel like in like five years time when so as a society culturally we're kind of in a space where we're supposed to be recovering from actually what's like a quite a huge social crisis and yet things are supposed to be normal and yet how, how normal do we actually feel and so what I was kind of interested in is not really yeah that acute moment of crisis but what would things look like after that big wave of crisis has passed and everyone's trying to kind of return back to their lives and when I was thinking about that moment I, I couldn't help but reflect on the sort of early 1920s post-World War One, and post the devastation of um, the Spanish flu epidemic and how people in that moment would feel sort of trying to return to their lives. Now one of the as as you mentioned, spiritualism is sort of one of your <laughs> special interests. Now, at that point, one of the things that people, especially in the UK, were very drawn to was the spiritualist movement as a way of kind of making sense of this basically cultural trauma that had happened, that everyone had participated in. And this was a process of kind of meaning making of the trauma. So 
that's sort of partly what led me into the themes of the book, actually. I think it, it sits really well with obviously where we're at right now. We are, as a global society, sort of working through a mass trauma post-COVID, post-everything. And I think there's like a very interesting parallel to sort of the, like the new age wellness industry and like coaching industry and everything that's really booming right now. And it's, you know, there's a lot of really well-meaning I think mm-hmm. organizations and people, but then there's also a lot of like darker sort of aspects of these things. And yeah, being in conversation with that moment afterwards, because we're so used to reading and engaging with topics of, you know, there's lots of World War I novels, yeah. but there aren't so many sort of in-depth looks at what, what does happen next? How do you go back? Exactly. Oh no, that's exactly, that's, you put that so well. That's really what I'm, I'm I find that so compelling those questions you know I'm not like a war historian I you know I I wasn't interested in writing a world war one novel there's a lot of them and a lot of other people who do them very well and I don't think I'm that person (laughs) but what I really wanted to look at is that moment of kind of rep like the search for reparation the search for meaning and as you say I think that we there is a kind of correlative right now where we are culturally looking for I guess answers looking for people ways to take back a little bit of agency over your you know lives over your health over your political agency whatever it happens to be and I was really stunned to see how much how much similarity there is really between 2023 and 1923. You've got people who like Robert and some of the people that he comes into contact with who are very ready to accept this thing and really looking and searching and finding meaning and then you've got people like Evelyn's sister and her parents who are very much like no no we're just going to go back to exactly how things were before and there's a lot of allusion to sort of what their life was like before and fitting those pieces together especially for Evelyn who's right in the middle of these two forces it's really really an interesting thing to watch along with as she navigates and I I do think that that pull towards what we deem normality really that's really powerful and yeah setting those two forces against each other on one hand you have that pull towards back towards normality maybe even a bit of denial and then this sort of pull into esotericism you know exploring new boundaries and horizons and the new, the magical, the mystical, those two things are really op- in opposition to each other. And I think, yeah, as you say, Evelyn really finds herself right in the middle of those two forces. And the two worlds are so vast and different. I think there's so much specificity to both of them. I mean, I imagine you had to do quite a bit of research to sort of get all these things going, because not only is this like esoteric world very specific, and there's a lot to unpack, but even just the types of clothing, the foods they were eating, the things they were doing at parties, it's really a whole world that you built. And it's very tactile and it's very easy to sort of fit in, but it doesn't feel like overwhelming of, you know, these are all of the details and this is all, it's very blended in. So I wonder how you sort of went about researching and creating all those details. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I mean, look, historical fiction is a nightmare for this kind of thing because you're writing a scene she unzipped her oh wait hang on (laughs) a were there zips b what side would the zip be and let me tell you there are a lot of people who really care about that stuff so it is a very time-consuming process for a historical fiction writer to get all of that detail 
correct and to try and kind of infuse your writing with it without it being too uh, like signposty. I've done research here, I've done research there. You know, and actually, I found it quite tricky um, researching this is sort of 20, 23, 24, because we're right in that era um, post war, but sort of pre the roaring 20s, which is what, you know, that what we maybe associate when you think about um, 1920s excess, jazz, sort of the young set, uh, you know, great Gatsby esque um, excess, cocktails and, you know, short dresses and flappers and prohibition, all that stuff. That's all much, much later. Um, and I feel like the early 20s are maybe like a little bit unfashionable from our perspective right now. So it was actually quite tricky for me to do a lot of that, especially material um, details about things like dress and clothes, about, I don't know, uh, the sort of outfits you would wear, the books that you were reading. Um, and a lot of the sources are very Art Deco focus, which is actually just like a tiny bit later than what I was looking at. So thank you for thank you for validating me. It was a really tricky process. I feel like there's not that many things that are set sort of in this exact moment. Like you said, normally it comes just a little bit earlier or a little bit later, so you can get that like real twenties feel. But I think it sits so well with. I mean, I of course again have some like favorite spiritualism things i was thinking of affinity by sarah waters so much so i was writing this i mean even like blithe spirit which is like much funnier and like a much more light-hearted take but there are some moments in the parties um that robert is sort of working at that are comical and you can imagine these like wildly dressed people doing crazy things and it's just like it's not what quite what we think of for that time period oh um yeah thank you again i think that I was trying to keep some levity. When you're talking about spiritualism, essentially you're talking about a movement that really at its core believes that you know, the human spirit persists beyond death and that you can communicate um, with people who have sort of passed, passed on, passed over. And so really what, uh, you know, some of the key themes of the book are about grief and about navigating grief and negotiating grief. And yet I really didn't want to write a depressing book, especially one written during the pandemic. The last thing I wanted to do was read or write anything really, really depressing. Um, and I think, you know, it's part of the human experience that even if you are, you know, going through a grieving process, it's there are still little cracks where you humour, there's still a place for humour and levity and laughter. And so I wanted to make sure, so kind of capture really, not just the the sort of mystical and the gloomy and the sort of spooky, um, but also those moments of farce and silliness and um, kind of over-the-topness. And there is plenty of spooky and tense and, you know, some very thrilling moments, but some of my, the best parts, my favorite parts, were these this, like, diverse cast of characters that, Robert finds himself and Evelyn as they sort of enter into this sort of section of society that is throwing all these parties and seances. And it's a surprisingly diverse group because I think people assume that, you know, there wasn't a lot of diversity in people intermingling in that time. But I think a group like spiritualism, where everyone has this 
sort of outside the bounds of normal but really intense core belief sort of draws people in from many different social areas and especially post-war where it allowed a lot of social mobility for groups that normally would not have had that. It creates a very interesting dynamic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was really important to me to try and capture a little bit of that. Diversity is something that, you know, gets a little bit overlooked when we're looking at, when we're reading historical fiction, um, you know, for all kinds of, uh, like, discursive reasons that you don't want to hear me rant about. Um, but it's, especially in the sort of bohemian um, set, the kind of clique that uh, Robert and Evelyn navigate in the novel, absolutely, this we see, you know, even in the historical record, we see a lot of evidence for people from all different kind of classes, backgrounds, whatever, mingling, you know, in the kind of excitement of the discovery of this, what they feel was, is, a new, is a new movement, a new kind of like, horizon for humanity. I think the characters of Flossie and Pups and Lily, I mean, I have a real soft spot for Lily, even though she is a bit of a mess, we'll say at times, but they're just, you can't help but be like, well, I'm on board with whatever is going on, even when they're making some like questionable decisions, because I think most of us would kind of want to be in that friend group. Oh, sure. And again, I mean, it's just as we've been saying, you know, kind of having been, having all lived through the last few years I actually I totally get the roaring 20s in a way that I didn't before and I'm like yeah but of course I want to cut all my hair off and like dance on a table and just hang out with a mad group of people you know having a ball and driving motor cars over canals or whatever it was they were up to like yeah okay I totally get it I see that allure of being swept in this kind of like moment of excess and kind of exuberance and I think for a character like Evelyn who has sort of come from the opposite upbringing, a very like repressed and closed off family who has experienced quite a bit of tragedy herself and has gone through things that have changed her. And then she enters into this world. It's really the voice that you've given her is so easy to follow along with. And even though there were a lot of moments where I was like, oh no, mm-hmm. What a choice. You still are like, I understand why you're doing it, even if we worry about her a little bit along the way. Oh, good. Yeah, relatable, if not um, agreeable. I think so often we, we think, like, especially in historical fiction, that women had to act in these very specific ways, and they're all these, like, likable, lovely ladies. But... That's just not realistic, and we don't have to like every character, especially for women, as they sort of navigate these spaces. But there's still something compassionate that you feel towards her, even when you know she's not making the choices that maybe you know are right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually am aiming for a little bit of almost frustration, I suppose, in a reader, um, because I did. I, I think that keeping that gap between reader and your and your protagonist is really important like you are observing someone else's life if I can evoke some a reader to look at Evelyn's decision and think oh what are you doing then I feel like I have succeeded because what I what I really want to do is create that distance where you're thinking what is she doing what would I do I definitely had a lot of moments with her where I was like you know 
I think I probably would have made that choice, or I can see how that would happen. And yet her voice is so strong and distinct through the entire like novel as you're going that I really felt like I understood her, even though you threw up this entire book, and I'm not going to say what the things are because I need people to experience it for themselves, but you definitely do not give us whole stories on people very deliberately. We never know. We know what we need to know to make sense of things, but there's a lot held back. Yeah, that is deliberate. You know, for me, one of my the key pleasures in my reading experiences is when I can read a book and then go to my sister and my mom and my friend and say, well, what did, you know, what was your take on this? You know, I finished reading this. You have to read it. We have, because I, I need you to read this so we can talk about it. That's my favorite moment. Is that like that sort of connection you get with a friend when you just can't, you, you need them desperately to read a book so that you could discuss everything. And in a way, that's what I was um, kind of trying to channel with this book by not giving I don't want to spell out all of the information. I want different people to be able to read it in different ways and to be able to talk about it with their friends um, and to still come away with slightly different opinions about the characters, about uh, about some of the revelations in the book. I have a very distinct thought that even when I read this book again, I will come away with different things than the first time I read it. because yeah, That's what I was aiming for. <laughs> there are definitely a few moments where I was like, I wonder, and you know, you start, there are a couple red herrings or places where you start to lead us down one path and, you know, that's not quite the right thing. And the last third of this book is so tense and claustrophobic and I couldn't stop turning pages. When you're sort of outlining this whole book, do you know, how do you create that tension? How do you start to ramp that up as you outline or maybe don't outline or edit or revise? Sure. Well, um, I really like novels and films and stories that start slow and simmer. And then you have that experience in the last sort of third 20% where you find yourself like unable to, to stop like reading and watching. For me, you know, that is just my peak enjoyment of a book is when I know it's way past my bedtime and I just have to keep going because things are there's this little sort of hints and I don't know the little bits that have been sort of laid up right at the beginning slowly finally come together um, and you just have to race ahead so again this is not for everybody um, not everybody likes to have that kind of climax I guess at the end the last sort of 20%, 30% of a novel. Um, but I, I'm deliberately trying to create that slow simmering atmosphere that builds towards a kind of whirlwind um, so that I can deliberately provoke the I'm going to stay up past my bedtime feeling. Those are the moments where like, I, you know, you start this book and you feel like you're just reading a historical fiction novel. This is just a snapshot in time. And then I got to a point where I was like, no, this is a thriller and I am, I need to finish it now. And as I was like working through, I couldn't stop. And I think especially because there are so many pieces that you don't ever have. Like there's so many points where, you know, you're looking at a thing from a lot of perspectives, but you can never see all of it at once. 
And I think there's a lot of books now or a lot of readers who are not maybe as interested in that. I think it's part of like the instant gratification yeah. world that we live in. But I think when you find something that does it so well, it's like you said, you just can't stop and you're up till three in the morning and there and you are. The, I mean, I read a lot. And for me, it's what the it's that immersion. It's the escapism in reading that I don't really experience anywhere else where I'm totally living in this other world for a couple of hours and it's just it's kind of an escapism beyond any other kind of entertainment or media experience and my aim as an author was always to try and give that to other people like if I can provide that for anybody then I feel like that my job is just done that's that's my like my my total uh goal like life goals as an author and those moments where I mean, I had some frustration. I mean, as much as I was trying to get to the end, I had to be like, is that really okay? And then you keep going. But I think especially when you have to get so much of yourself into what you're reading in order to get so much back, like you have to put so much of your own thought into, okay, well, what are these characters really like? And what is this world really like? I love that sort of mental exercise of having to be like, no, I'm talking to this book just as much as it's talking to me. I can't wait to get through and to see how people are going to respond to this because I know that there are so many people right now. I, I'm thinking of so many like even like TikTok communities where the girlies on there love these sort of female characters that have, you know, some morally gray or ambiguous things. You know, I think Evelyn, a lot of the time she's looking out for herself in these moments oh, yeah. just as much as she is looking out for her husband or her family. But she has a lot of sort of, I don't want to say selfish, because I think it's more self-preservation, but she's really trying to make a place for herself. Well, absolutely. And to find, I think, a, a place of what she considers to be safety. And that can make you selfish, you know, that can make you selfish. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but, you know, that's a natural reaction. I think especially in comparison sort of to her sister, who, you know, has often her best interest at heart, but doesn't quite know how to go about it. And especially in the grand scheme of their family and the things that they've been through as a whole, which I don't want to go too much into because again, there's just so many good things that I think people need to experience as they happen. But watching her sort of navigate the expectations of who she should be and, you know, she should be, she's a young wife and, you know, reaching the point of having children, especially because her you know, her younger sister already has a child and sort of navigating that world as well is something that I think a lot of readers will connect mm -hmm. with. Yeah, I felt, I felt, you know, Evelyn's sister is a bit more of a sort of, I guess, a traditional character or maybe what we might expect from a, a traditional character, a woman of her class in that time. And I think especially in this world of that, I imagine many readers won't be as familiar again with it as I am, but it's, it's a very easy world to slip into because it has so many of like interesting things that we're used to hearing about. I mean, Houdini makes a mention, mm -hmm. Arthur Conan Doyle, like there are a lot of fa like figures that people will recognize that were also a part of this world and that I think people won't know about, especially in like this idea of seances. Right, right. Yeah. And writing those scenes, I mean, those spooky scenes of, like, communing with the dead and going through, I mean, there's a lot there that is is a little bit, you know, it's beyond just a normal historical fiction novel. I think there's going to be, for people who 
are looking for something this fall that's like a little bit spookier, a little bit more horror, those aspects will really be something fun. Was it so fun to write the seance scenes? You know what? It was not. This is a, like a terrible confession. It's one of okay. these things, the writer, where you think, oh, I'm going to have so much fun doing it. And then you and then you realize, oh, God, there are so many. Oh, why are there so many seances? They were a lot more fun as the writing process developed. But at first, it was quite daunting. I mean, I actually did go to a few seances as part of my research for this novel to kind of get a sense not only of the sort of atmosphere and and the experience and the expectations of, of other people, but also the, the kind of experience of being read. You know, I was quite interested in what that feels like. And eventually, I, I think I was able to, to kind of channel some of that into the seance scenes. Um, just the sort of uh, the atmosphere and that really helped to to make it more it more fun to write and less of a thought exercise I mean I think there are lots of points in this book where you vacillate back and forth between like is this a hoax or could this possibly be real and that sort of unknowing in between of what is the real thing behind all this and especially between the different characters because everyone comes with sort of their own preconceived notions of what this is that I think like any reader no matter where they're coming at this from will be able to be like oh yes maybe they're more on like the flossy end of the right, spectrum exactly. maybe they're right there with Robert we don't know and I think that maybe move. I mean that's another thing is that it's it's that thing where you know you don't believe in ghosts um was it Edith Wharton so she said I don't believe in ghosts but I'm afraid of them I mean I might be paraphrasing but it's a sort of thing where you know even in your own like idea of what you think that you believe there's still quite a lot of of room to maneuver and it's a very natural very human thing um to find the needle shifting depending on where you are if it's 3 a.m if you're alone in a a spooky forest uh if you're you know sitting in a lecture hall somewhere if you're on the tube whatever it happens to be um and so yeah i think it depends on the person it depends on the place it depends on you know, your your mood. I think everybody experiences that. And I think that that's sort of the hallmark of how this connects to where we are now. I think there's so much of that now where people are searching for answers or searching for that next thing. Mm-hmm. And I've even seen among, you know, my friends and family, people getting really into something post-COVID and post-lockdown that you're like, I never would have anticipated that's that's somewhere you would have ended up and I feel like that is definitely a notion in this book of like I didn't think that we'd ever end up here but here we are yeah absolutely and maybe that you know it's again this maybe this is a cultural moment in flux and we won't those things won't settle and in five years your your friends and family may not still be pursuing those interests or maybe you know Robert would have stopped being interested in spiritualism after who knows that sort of that moment before all the dust has settled I think it's it's kind of just an it's an interesting it's not exactly coincidence because I, I was thinking about it but it's definitely um like an interesting comparison the that we are a hundred years apart from the the setting of this novel and yet people are still looking for answers in the same way and in a hundred years from now they will be writing the novels of of post-COVID in, an int- in oh, the same yeah. way and looking back and having to do their own um, sort of seance research. Um, oh my gosh. 
But I think also the digital record is going to make that a lot easier for a lot of people. I imagine that so many of these things, because of the nature of it, were just kind of lost to time because of fad type movement on past all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, historiography and the way that historians, uh, you know, the way that we culturally look at history. That's why we have decided that 1925 onwards is a bit more interesting than 1923 and 24. History is in the eye of the beholder, obviously. So it's, it's exactly that, that thing you just never know. I think it also has this idea where I, a lot of people look back on it sort of as, oh, I can't believe anyone ever yeah. believed in this. Or, you know, of course, that's so outlandish. And yet, how do you know if you're, you know, in that moment, it's so different than looking back. I think we can say that about a lot of things. I know, like, even just looking back at, like, Y2K or that kind of thing, you know, we look back now and go, that was so outlandish. How did we ever think that? No, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the discussion in the spiritualist movement in the early 20s was about um, the telephone and about um, Telegram. And, you know, what would, if it, if the telephone allows you to lay down lines and speak to humans on the other side of the world, why couldn't you maybe use a telephone to one day speak to people who are no longer alive. You know, and that seems like a little bit out there. And, you know, you might, we might look back at that and think that's a bit silly um, and a bit outlandish. But, you know, I think, you know, even if you consider the ways that we use AI or the conversations that we're having now about AI and, and about kind of linguistic modeling on, I don't know, bodies of, text but these of emails is it so ludicrous that you might one day be able to text out with someone who's not around anymore based on their digital footprint no that doesn't sound outlandish to me at all no i mean in a hundred years we will all have uploaded consciousness to the cloud so <laughs> yeah. there won't have to be anyone you know communicating with the other side because we'll all just still be here or we'll go the other way and everyone's just living in the woods eating from their acorn the cups of tea yeah I'm kind of hoping for that too. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm a little bit on the I'm on the let's all go to the woods yeah, that spectrum, but. so one of my favorite questions that I get to ask people because I just selfishly want to you know build my own library is who are some of your literary influences and favorite works um well for this novel literary influence is definitely Sarah Waters um you mentioned affinity but also um, The Little Stranger. Um, I don't know if you've read that. It's just one of the most terrifying novels I've ever read. And it's a sort of literary gothic thriller. Um, it's a ghost story where you're not sure how much of the content is sort of supernatural. And, um, you know, Sarah Waters, I think, is such a genius historical fiction writer because I think she's very tactile um, and her, she's very, her prose is very evocative and very grounded and kind of materiality and physicality. And I think for me, that's what helps to bring, um, you know, the past or whatever, it, but it would really bring an experience to life as that sort of tactile element. So, yeah, for this novel, absolutely, that's what I was um, thinking of very much is the way that Sarah Waters treats the supernatural, but also the way that she thinks about just kind of materiality, yeah, physicality. 
it sits so well with sort of this world of maybe spooky, maybe real. What's spookier, the other side or people? I mean, I think that's a huge thing in this is what really would be scarier if these people are talking to the dead or if they're not? Yeah, absolutely. So I can't wait for people to sort of get into that and get their hands on it. So I have to also ask, what's next for you after this book? Um, So I am working on another manuscript at the moment, which is another kind of, uh, I guess, like a kind of gothic literary mystery, uh, which should be out in the UK in 2024 if I get my draft done on time. So my editor is right now probably looking at her (laughs) watch and shaking her head. Well, I can't wait. I will follow anywhere that you go next after this book I am invested and I am in and I can't wait for people to get their hands on hazardous spirits so thank you so much for joining me today no thank you so much for having me thank you for listening poured over is a Barnes and Noble production to help other readers find us please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts